0: In 1962, Billy Hamlin released his infectious R&B single, If You Ain't Got No Bread, You Might As Well Stay Home In Bed. If you like 60s R&B and you haven't heard this song, you need to look it up. You'll love it. Even if you don't like 60s R&B, you go listen to this song and you will love it. It'll make you move. The song begins with this elongated spoken word intro as first the landlord and then a guy from the bank coming to collect on a loan and then his girlfriend come knocking for Billy Hamlin. All these people need something from him that he doesn't have. Cash, bread, dough. Billy Hamlin sings, Oh, well, the phone and the doorbell kept a ringing. I got so many bills to pay that I ain't got a penny to my name today. So let me tell you about this sneaky little game I play. I just pull down my shades and lock the door real tight, pull off my shoes and turn out the light. Cause like man, if you ain't got no bread, you might as well stay home in bed. That's one way to deal with it. If you ain't got no bread, you might as well stay home in bed. If you don't have any money, any cash, any dough, any bread, you might as well stay home in bed. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. If you have nothing, if you're empty, if you have nothing in and of yourself to offer to God or to offer to anyone else, then you are exactly who Jesus is looking for. Jesus is looking for people who are spiritually poor. He's looking for people who ain't got no bread. As he said in Matthew 5:3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who realize that they need God's help. They are those who confess that they are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually poor. The poor in spirit are those who can say, I ain't got no bread. Those are the people that Jesus came seeking. And those are the people that Jesus uses to extend his kingdom in this world. Let me ask you something, and I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you ever feel inadequate to do ministry? Ever feel that way? Like, how in the world can I do what God has called me to do? I feel so inadequate. We've all been there. And we will all continue to be there because that's the way it is. It's the way it's supposed to be. In our passage today, we'll see Jesus send the disciples out two by two, two, and I'm sure they felt totally unqualified and unable to do what Jesus had called them to do in and of themselves. They're going to have to go out and preach. They're going to have to go out and Cast out demons. They're going to have to go lay hands on people and heal them. They can't do that in and of themselves. And that's the key. In and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer the world. We have no power. We have no wisdom. We have no swagger that we can bring about the kingdom. We need the king. We don't need swagger. Jared Wilson said, the church needs pastors who have the swagger gospeled out of them. And the world needs churches that have the swagger gospeled out of them. No fluff, no frills, no fog machines, no laser beam lights. The world doesn't need that. The world can do, Hollywood can do laser beams better. There's a reason why typically Christian movies don't do well at the box office because we don't do movies well, do we? The world does movies really well. What the church does really well is be the body of Christ with the good news of Jesus. The world needs churches and Christians who have had the swagger gospeled right out of them. We have no power, no wisdom, no swagger to bring about the kingdom. We need the king. We don't need swagger. We need Jesus. We need the Spirit of God. And that's exactly who the disciples had and the power that they went out in. King Jesus sent them out with his authority and in the power of the Holy Spirit to do ministry for his glory. So turn to Mark Chapter six, and what the disciples will learn as they are sent out on mission is what Mark will remind us of today in his gospel, and it's this: ministry is all about poor beggars telling other poor beggars where to find bread. Ministry, evangelism, missions, Awana, youth group, Sunday school, one-on-one discipleship—you fill in the blank. It's all about. Poor beggars telling other poor beggars where to find bread. Life and ministry in the kingdom of God is all about telling one another, I ain't got no bread, man. Can you dig it? But guess what? I know where to get it. If you ain't got no bread, you are a perfect candidate for Jesus. If you ain't got no bread, you are exactly Who Jesus is looking for. The late Presbyterian pastor Jack Miller, he's the guy who came up with the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. He said this about life and ministry as poor beggars, as poor disciples who are desperately in need of God's grace. He said, D.T. Niles has said that evangelism is one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where to find bread. This is a wonderful definition. But now I wanted to add something to this insight. Evangelism is also one hungry beggar eagerly eating the bread and being changed by it and then telling the other poor beggars where to eat of the same bread. Learning I was a poor beggar who needed to lean daily on the promises of God changed my whole life in ministry. As the Spirit of God breaks down your self-dependence and pride, you will become a part of the chain of grace. Other weak people will see your thirsting and drinking of Christ through faith in his gospel, and they will want to drink too. That's what the disciples, those will see in Mark 6, and us as well. That's what disciples need to know. We tell people where to get the bread of life, and then we feast on that same bread. We preach the gospel to others. And we preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to daily lean on God's promises to us. We have to be open to the Spirit of God breaking down our self dependence and breaking down our pride so that we can be used by Him to minister God's grace to other people. Ministry is all about poor beggars telling other poor beggars where to find bread. So look at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Two by two, and he says that they can't take anything with them no food, no bread, no granola bars, no suitcases, no debit cards, not even an extra pair of underwear. They can only wear one tunic, which was the equivalent of our underwear. The tunic was a, a one piece garment, kind of like a, a onesie that you wore underneath your robes. So, no extra clothes for their journey, no suitcases. No cash, no cheddar, no bank, no bucks, no scrilla, no green, no loot, no dough, no bread. What they could bring was a staff. Oh, and a pair of sandals. They could wear their Birkenstocks, and that was it. Actually, there was one more thing that they could bring. The promise of Jesus. They were being sent and they had been given the authority of Jesus to do ministry. They had a staff, pair of sandals, and a promise. It's kind of like that old Sesame Street little uh, bit. I don't know if you remember it, but I play it for my girls all the time, and they love it. It's, a, it's where the mom sends the daughter to the grocery store, and she's going to get a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. And she repeats it the whole way, a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. Anybody remember that? Look it up. It's it's worth the minute 15 of your life. That's the disciples here. A wooden staff, a pair of sandals, and a promise of Jesus. A wooden staff, a pair of sandals, and a promise of Jesus. They had a promise of Jesus that they could take with them. That they could daily lean on his promise. And they would need that because in and of themselves they had nothing. They were empty. And it's true for us. These are the kind of people that Jesus sends out with his power and his authority. Weak and desperate people. Jesus sends out weak, desperate, dependent people. That's who he picks for his team. A common saying when it comes to serving in any ministry is that one doesn't feel qualified or able to do it. There's fear. There's weakness. Well, guess what? That's exactly the place to be. That thing you feel when you're supposed to serve and you feel inadequate, that's exactly where God wants you. Don't be afraid of it. Welcome it. That's all that Jesus works with. That's who he picks, people that feel like that. So be encouraged to live and serve people and move out of your comfort zones. Be encouraged to serve somewhere here at grace. You feel scared, you feel inadequate, you're exactly who Jesus is calling. Your weakness And your dependence and your desperation is what qualifies you for ministry. Your weakness and your dependence and your desperation merges with Jesus' authority. It merges with his power. And then ministry happens. That's how it works. You feel weak and inadequate. And then Jesus supplies his power. He supplies his authority. And then people get ministered to. That's just how it works. You're scared. You feel like you cannot do it. You're desperate. You look for excuses to find a way out. But you know that God is calling you to some ministry. And so you stress out and you freak out. And you don't sleep the night before. And you panic. But then when the time comes for you to serve and you have to go. And you've called into Michelle too many times and you can't do this anymore. You've got to teach that Sunday school class to those third graders. And you get there, and guess what? You find out that Jesus is already there, and he's been waiting on you. And his power collides and merges with your weakness and your desperation. And then other people get blessed. That's how it's supposed to work. That's life and ministry in the kingdom of God. Every week, I pray 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, for everyone that serves here at Grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So that, or in order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I pray that verse every week because first, I want God to be glorified through Jesus Christ. But I also pray it because I know that every single week there are people serving here who feel weak and inadequate for the task that God has called them to. So I pray that God strengthens everyone who serves. And I pray this for myself too. Every single week I pray that verse because every single week I feel totally inadequate to stand up here and preach. You can ask Heather every week. I get up, I tell her, I have nothing to say today. I have nothing to say. I'm not gonna be there in 35 minutes. What am I gonna say? Every week, while everyone is singing, I'm singing and praying and asking Jesus to help me because I feel so desperate, because I feel so inadequate. I do sing, but most weeks I sing a line of a song and then I pray, help me, Jesus. And then I sing a line to the song, and then I pray, I don't feel adequate. Holy Spirit, help. And sometimes I don't even finish the lyric. Midway through a song lyric, I switched to prayer. Before the throne of God, I need you right now. I have a strong and perfect plea. I'm pleading with you now, Holy Spirit. Help a great high priest whose name, I know the name of someone who needs you, Lord. Benji Magnus needs you, Lord. That's what I'm like here every week at Grace. I feel so inadequate to preach God's holy and sovereign word every single week, but that's exactly where Jesus wants me every week. Charles Spurgeon used to pray, and on every step leading up to the the pulpit, he would pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Every single week, John Calvin would whisper under his breath, right as he came into the, hole, into the pulpit, he would say, come, Holy Spirit. It's exactly where Jesus wants me every week. It's exactly where Jesus wants you every week, every single time that you serve and minister to people. When you serve in Awana, he wants you to come weak and needy. He wants you to leave your swagger at the door. When you serve with our students, he wants you weak and needy. When you teach a Sunday school lesson to third graders, weak and needy. When you make the coffee here on Sunday morning, weak and needy. And when you share the gospel with someone, weak and needy. You are always weak and needy. And Jesus is always sufficient, always powerful, always trustworthy. Learn to accept your weakness it is what qualifies you for ministry. Learn to accept your neediness and then run to Jesus. It's a perfect combination. Weak sinners and a very real and a very powerful and a very trustworthy Savior. It's a match made in heaven. And that's exactly what's happening in Mark 6. After Jesus gives the disciples instructions on what they could and could not bring on their ministry adventures, he tells them this. Look at verse 10. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So the disciples are being sent out, and they have to trust that God will provide what they need food shelter it was the custom back then that people would open their home to travelers so the disciples are learning how to trust god that he would provid did that light just come on or no did it get brighter was that just me sorry it seemed like it got did it get brighter or no okay i was like is the spirit's here he's working (laughs) It it was kevin He knows I'm reading from eight-point font, so he wanted to give me a little help. Oh, good Lord, where was I? So the disciples are learning how to trust God, that he would providentially provide the right people and the right homes for them. The disciples are learning to trust and to lean on Jesus' promises. This is ministry 101, learning to trust God's promises. This is discipleship 101, learning to trust God's promises. And if a village or home welcomes them, then they're to stay there and keep doing ministry in the authority and power of Jesus. And if they go someplace and the village doesn't want to hear the message of repentance, then the disciples are to leave. And as they are to leave, they're supposed to shake the dust off their Birkenstocks. Why? Why does Jesus tell them to do this? Because this was an act of judgment on the village. It illustrated that the village was accountable to God for refusing to repent and rejecting the gospel, the good news that God loves sinners. So the disciples go out and call people to repentance, to turn from their sins and to turn back to God. And they cast out demons, many demons out of people, and laid hands on people, and they were healed. They were doing ministry strengthened and empowered by Jesus, the one who gave them authority. They were trusting his promise to them. You go out in my authority and you do this. And they were trusting that. And they were making the real Jesus known. This is key. They were making the real Jesus known. They were going out and preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit and making the real Jesus, the real Spirit-anointed Messiah known. They're telling people about Jesus, the one that Isaiah had prophesied about. They were telling people about the real Jesus who came to bring good news to the poor and the one who came to bind up the brokenhearted and the one who came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the one who came to comfort all who mourn. They were fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy as they went throughout the villages calling people to repentance. And what causes people to repent? Is it screaming loud on the streets with the sign and a bullhorn? God's kindness causes people to repent. What does Paul say in Romans 2? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness to sinners that causes them to repent. Repent. This is what the disciples were preaching. The word repentance simply means to change your mind. So repentance is is having a change of mind and meeting God again and being comforted by Him. Understand this, Grace. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. Don't reverse it. The Pharisees wanted to reverse it. The Pharisees went around preaching that our repentance leads to God's kindness, that if we will repent of our sins, then he will be kind to us. And the disciples are being sent out by Jesus, and they are contradicting that message of the Pharisees. The disciples enter these villages, and they pull a Romans 2-4 before Paul ever comes on the scene. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. It's his kindness that draws us to repent. Repentance doesn't follow hard preaching that slams you with shame and guilt. I heard of a preacher last week, someone told me, he just shamed us. He actually said, shame on you. That doesn't change a heart. Instead, it's preaching that highlights the fact that we are all poor beggars. That's the kind of preaching that leads you back home. It's as you are comforted and sweetly allured and spoken to tenderly by Jesus that leads you to repentance. Who knew that repentance of all things could be so sweet, so life-giving, so freeing, so liberating. Owning up to your sin and selfishness doesn't seem like it would be a good thing, does it? Having to admit that you're sinful and that you're selfish doesn't seem like it would be a good thing. Because we all hate doing that, don't we? But it is a good thing. Because when you do that, you get Jesus. When you change your mind, when you turn back to God, you get Jesus. Isn't he who you want? On the surface, repentance seems like it would be like eating liver and drinking prune juice. Doesn't it? Repentance. It sounds like You have to wear, like, itchy wool clothes and lay on a bed of nails and you're served liver and prune juice for dinner. But it's actually comforting. Repentance is comforting. Holding on to your sin and loving it so much and refusing to admit you've done wrong, that is eating liver and drinking prune juice and wearing itchy wool clothes and laying on a bed of nails. That's an awful place to be. That's why David said in Psalm 32 that when he held on to his cherished sins, his body was wasting away. But when he confessed his sins, when he relented, when he repented, when he changed his mind, when he turned back to God, he said there was joy. He was happy. Listen, I've seen my share of stuffy, legalistic, prideful, self-righteous people, and they're miserable And they're angry because they focus on the sins of other people and not their own. They're angry because in their eyes, nobody is living up to their standards. So they waste away wearing these scowls and these frowns because they have not experienced the joy of admitting that they are a mess. Listen, self-righteousness will kill you. Self-righteousness is a shovel. It will dig your grave for you. Self-righteousness will bury you earlier than you're supposed to be buried. It will literally kill you. And you can spot self-righteous people a mile away because they're angry like the Pharisees. They're mad. These frown lines across their foreheads because nobody's pulling their weight. But those who know their sin and who confess it, who run to the comforting arms of Jesus. Those people know what joy looks like. So repentance, what the disciples were preaching here, simply owning up to your sin and your need of a Savior, and then turning back to Jesus. And what leads us to repentance? What Paul said. It's God's kindness. Puritan Walter Marshall said it like this, God does not drive you along with whips and terrors or by the rod of the schoolmaster of the law. Rather, he leads you and draws you to walk in his ways by pleasant attractions. The love of Christ is the greatest and most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living. Hear that? The love of Christ will encourage you not to licentiousness, not to say, hey, there's grace, I can sin all I want. No, if rightly understood, it will lead to what? To godly living, to godliness. That's what the disciples were preaching. They were preaching a message of grace, a message of pleasant attractions, which stood in contrast to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. In other words, the disciples were telling people about the real Jesus, the real Messiah that Isaiah was talking about. They're telling people he's kind, and he's merciful, and he's gentle, and he's caring, he's forgiving, and he's gracious. But he's also the judge. The judge that every human being will stand before. And that's why they are calling people to repentance. Calling people to change their minds about Jesus and who they think he is. Because human beings will give account to him one day. So the disciples went out two by two and told people, hey, we get it. We really mess up sometimes. But let us tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of us. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? Yeah, we hear you. You think Jesus' ragtag group of followers is a bunch of hypocrites, full of a bunch of hypocrites. But you see, you're wrong about that because our clan is not full of hypocrites. There's room for more. Want to join us? That's how we have to go about life and ministry here in our city. We go out with the gospel and admit that we're just as messed up as the world is. Yeah, they'll say the church is full of hypocrites. And you say, no, it's not. There's room for more. Would you like to join us? We go out with the gospel and we admit that we're just as messed up as everybody else. And yet somehow God is still fond of us. We're just as needy in and of ourselves. We have nothing to offer anyone, nothing to offer this city. We ain't got no bread. And that reminds us that ministry is all about poor beggars telling other poor beggars where to find bread. Imagine if, if, if a zombie apocalypse could really happen and like the world really shut down and you discovered a way to get into a Costco and you walked in and you're like, man, there's all this food here. Wouldn't you want to tell people, at least the people in your group that's fighting the people in the other groups? You at least want to say, hey, I found a place, I found a big jar of pickles, don't you miss pickles? And I found these big jars of mayonnaise, and we should throw those at the zombies because it's not worth anything, right? Wouldn't you do that? Tell people, I found food, you're starving, I found food, come with me and let's eat. That's what we're called to do. Us, the church, God's people, poor beggars telling other poor beggars where to find bread and then feasting on the very bread that we offer to others. That's ministry. It's feasting on Jesus. We are beggars still. We don't arrive. We will always be beggars who need to feast on Jesus, the bread of life. But sometimes we forget that, don't we? Sometimes we forget that we are just as needy as the lost world that we are called to minister to. Sometimes we forget that. And when we do, our self-dependence and our self-righteousness and our pride rears its ugly head. Jack Miller also said this, I may not have the odor of whiskey on my breath, But is not the smell of my self-righteousness much more offensive to God? We clean living sinners are no less fallen than anyone else. We should expect that a confrontation between the God of the first commandment and us worldlings would unleash a holy wrath upon us. But instead of a curse, we are staggered by the massiveness of God's love. True faith always has a hungry mouth for the bread that does not perish. Apart from a soul hunger for Christ, there is no cure for the religious professionalism and lukewarmness that forever crouches at the door of the self-satisfied Christian. A friend summed up the issue like this. When I first became a Christian, I was a poor beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. Gradually, though, I became an ex-beggar, telling poor beggars to find bread. When our witnessing sinks to this level, we seek not to win others by our welcoming love, but to protect ourselves from any deep involvement in their lives. The truth is that in our heart of hearts, we all long to be ex-beggars, self-sufficient, capable human beings, straightening out other people from above. But grace does not work that way. It falls on the fallen, the needy, the broken, and the guilty. We have it most abundantly when we raise crippled, bleeding hands to heaven, crying out for help that we know that we cannot provide for ourselves. We remain poor beggars as disciples. We tell other poor beggars that they can find satisfying food, the bread of life in Jesus, but we also must feast on this bread too. We never become ex-beggars. We go out on mission just like the disciples here in Mark chapter 6. We go out as poor beggars who need to lean daily on the promises of God. And as the Spirit of God breaks down our self-dependence and our self-righteousness and our pride, we then become a part of the chain of grace to other poor beggars. Other weak people will see our thirsting and see our drinking of Christ through faith in his gospel. And they will want to drink too. That's what we're called to, Grace. That's what Mark is telling us here. We don't go out on our own authority. We go out empowered by Jesus' authority. That's our calling as a church. To tell other beggars that they, just like us, can find bread that will truly satisfy True faith always has a hungry mouth for the bread that does not perish. And true faith wants to share that bread. That's our calling here at Grace. We want to take the real Jesus to our city and to the central coast. We do not want to do what Jesus' hometown, his city did with him, like we saw last week. They divorced Jesus from God's word. They wanted to define Jesus according to their own ideas. And no doubt, People here in our city have done this. They have their own ideas about who Jesus is, and we want to clear that up for them. We want to change their minds about who Jesus is so that they will repent, so that they will change their mind and then turn to Jesus. We want to take the real Jesus to our city. He's kind and merciful and gentle and caring and forgiving and gracious, but he's also the judge the judge that every human being will stand before and give account. And where do we see God's love and mercy and grace and kindness merge with his holiness and justice? It's at the cross. That's where we find the real Jesus, at the cross. We find the real Jesus at the cross. God's love and God's justice meet at the cross. He demonstrates his love for sinners and his hatred of their sin at the cross. The crux of the Christian life is all centered around and wrapped up in the truth that Jesus suffered for us on the cross, in our place, for our sins, in order to bring us to God. That's where you find the real Jesus. And that's where we need to point sinners as we go out and minister to our city. We want to be a welcoming church that stands with her arms wide open, with her doors wide open to the messiest kind of people that our city can provide. Open wide your arms, open wide these doors, and say, "Santa Maria, give us the messiest people you got. We'll take them." That's the kind of church we want to be. We are here as His representatives, and we want to invite and welcome everybody to His heavenly banquet that that's coming. We want to be a church whose lips drip with the love and compassion of Jesus for sinners. To echo the words of Jesus in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, no bread, no dough, no cash, no cheddar, no scrilla, come, buy and eat come by wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food there's a party coming grace ain't no party like a jesus party trust me the wedding supper of the lamb It's coming and we want to invite people. We want to say, come, it's free. Come to the party. You you think you've partied? You haven't partied until you partied with Jesus. We have a very unique kingdom opportunity and responsibility here on the Central Coast. A very unique opportunity and a very unique responsibility. We need to be active as a church, and as individual disciples in taking the message of the cross to our area because the central coast from Santa Barbara to to San Luis is the number two never-churched region in America. In all of America, we live in the number two never-churched region. The other one's in Florida somewhere. We're number two on the list of places where a higher percentage of our population has never once set foot in a church. 15% of the population on the Central Coast has never set foot in church once on a Sunday. So if they aren't gracing the doors of our churches, where will they hear the good news? Where will they hear about coming judgment? Where will they hear about how they can escape that and instead go to a party? Where will the 15% hear that Jesus loves them? That means we have to live sent as disciples who are calling people to repentance and telling them just how much Jesus loves them. We have to trust that Jesus is with us. He's given us his authority to go out and then go tell people about him. And when you share the good news of Jesus with people, they may hate you. They may laugh at you. I had a guy here in town laugh at me when I invited him to church. He was ringing up my groceries, and I invited him to church, and he just started laughing, one of these like deep, Belly, gut laughs, you know, as he's ringing me up. Talk about uncomfortable. (laughs) Ha, 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 be $37. But God got the last laugh because about a year later, the guy started attending church here. He didn't remember me, but you can bet that I remembered him. He laughed, and God laughed about a year later when he walked into this church. And He was here for about a year, a little bit more, and then he moved on. I never told him what he did, but I knew, and God knew. You never know what God is going to do when you tell people about his son. Let me repeat that. You never know what God is going to do when you tell people about his son. So 15% of the population on the Central Coast has never set foot in church once on a Sunday, and we want to do our part to change that. We want to stay focused on our mission here at Grace, which is this. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. That's why this church is here. To tell the good news of Jesus so that people get excited about God and they glorify and enjoy Him in every area of their lives and everywhere that they go. We don't want that to just happen here in these walls on Sunday morning where we glorify and enjoy God there. We want to do it everywhere. That's discipleship. That's making disciple, making disciples. And this is the message, the good news that we want to take to our city and to the Central Coast. We want to tell people, Jesus loves you. Tell them that they can have all their sins forgiven. Tell them that they can have peace with God. Tell them that they can face death and eternity with assurance and hope. Tell them that they are invited to the greatest party ever. So go and tell people this wonderful news can be true for them. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this wonderful news can be true for you. Number one, if you repent, if you change your mind about who you think Jesus is, if you fess up to your sin, fess up to your selfishness, fess up to your rebellion, fess up to the fact that you've been living as the king of your little world in rebellion against the real king. And then secondly, if you trust in Jesus' finished work for you. That's the message that is waiting to be declared to the Central Coast, and God has called you and me to declare it. It's a very specific opportunity and a very specific responsibility that we have as a church. So let's get busy. And as you go, remember, evangelism, missions, ministry, fill in the blank, it's all about poor beggars telling other poor beggars where they can find bread. So go tell your friends and your families, your coworkers and strangers that they can find the bread of life. Tell them that Jesus satisfies. Let's close with something that Bill Bright said. Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, gave an interview with Christianity Today several years before his death. And here are a few snippets. Christianity Today said, What is your condition? He said, I've lost 60% of my lung capacity and it keeps going down. One day I'll breathe my last, which is fine. I can say I've lived a pretty exciting life. But since it was announced to me that there is no cure for the disease, I've entered into a different relationship and a more wonderful intimacy with the Lord. James says to rejoice when you have difficulties. Paul speaks of rejoicing when you suffer. I know the reality of what they were saying. CT says, your health is declining. He says, yes, but my spirit is soaring. Do you feel you have completed the mission for which you were put on earth? Bill Bright says, God doesn't need Bill Bright any more than he needs a twig on a tree. He created us in his image, and he loves us. But he can raise up sticks and stones to worship him. So it's not as though my departure is going to leave a big hole. Christianity today then says, what would be your parting words to believers? And Bill Bright says this. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Peace I leave with you. So my word to believers would be, Let us awaken out of our Laodicean spirit and return to our first love as the church at Ephesus was admonished to do and let us share this most joyful news with everybody on the planet. Let's share this most joyful news with everyone on the central coast and everywhere we go. And yes, you may be rejected like Jesus was in his hometown as we saw last week or you might be beheaded like John the Baptist, which we'll see next week. Or you might get arrested. You might even be killed for loving Jesus. But he loves you, so what's the worst that can happen? You be killed? Is that the worst that can happen? I seem to recall a sermon I preached out of Mark two weeks ago on Easter, and I distinctly remember being reminded that Jesus is pretty good at resurrecting dead people. So if you go share the good news, what's the worst that can happen? Prison? Death, it's nothing for Jesus. He specializes in resurrection. He specializes in bringing people back from the dead. There's a party coming. And the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, is that if you ain't got no bread, you are invited to come and buy all that you want to eat and drink. Come everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. Come buy wine and milk. Come even if you ain't got no bread. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us as evidenced at the cross, where your holiness and justice and righteousness, your love, met our sin in the person of your son thank you that you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could have his righteousness so we could be declared clean and be able to come into your presence help us as a church in this unique time and with this unique opportunity and responsibility to do our part to tell other poor beggars where they can find bread that satisfies. Help us to point them to the cross. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open blind eyes when we do for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.